Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here with The Pure Now Show. This is episode number 14. My guest today is Mark Pickering. Mark is a 30-year veteran in marketing and advertising, specializing in event marketing. He's also an advocate of mental health. Great to have him on the show. Here we go. Hey, Mark. Hey there, Mark. Kia from uh, Tamaki Makaurau in uh, Aotearoa. You sound like you're speaking from Hawaii. It, it very much is. Our uh, First Nation people here are Maori. They're descended from the Hawaii Islands, which is in uh, are somewhere around the Pacific Islands of Hawaii. So, yes, the language is definitely related, and the people are genealogy is also definitely related. Um, in fact, our culture, we won't go too much into it, but much of it was hijacked by the Hawaiian tourism industry because they found things like the tiki, uh, which is a Maori New Zealand Aotearoa item to be quite, hmm, that seems like a good tourist thing. So the Hawaiian Tourism Board adapted quite a few of our uh, Maori hmm, cultural icons, things that might work nicely in a hotel. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating. I had no clue about that appropriation. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, I can't remember. It's a very, been a very interesting historical piece around um, how the Hawaiian Hawaiian Tourism Board took it. So the 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 hula dancing. Yeah. That's most of that is Tahitian derivative. It's right. not native to Hawaii. Right. I don't know if you know much about Scottish culture, but um, in the 19th century when Robert Burns and his great poetry and Robbie Louis, Robert Louis Stevenson and these great literary artists came out of Scotland, there was an appropriation of things like bagpipes are not originally from Scotland. They're actually from, they're a, Celt, they're a Celtic thing from Ireland, but the Scottish thought they'd make them and turn them into a Scottish icon. So again, it just became, it's around tourist, cultural identity and tourist uh, Appropriation, I think, is a good way. But anyway, back to back to New Zealand. We've just had the news that we are into a lockdown again. Uh, so, in the world of COVID, uh, it was announced half an hour ago that we are going, uh, well, continuing to go into a, a snap lockdown. First of all, let me let me thank you for coming on the Pure Now Show. Really appreciate it. We've been trying to get you on for a little bit, and uh, yeah. timing is everything. This is the time to do it. What is the degree of lockdown that you guys are uh, going under? So just a bit of a rewind. New Zealand's been pretty much COVID-free now for nine to ten months. Uh, before that, there's only been small lockdowns, um, uh, and not of a not of a not of the strength uh, that we would have all went through in the early days. Um, uh, having recently come back from Singapore, that was probably the level of lockdown that we've had in the past 12 months. But we are now back to full lockdown. I guess everything that you would consider to have um, masks everywhere, everything's closed apart from supermarkets and hospitals, essential driving only, no one outside of two kilometer radius, very, very strict. So no, we, it's the Delta variant. We didn't think that we would have to face it, unfortunately. Uh, that reality has proven false because it is a, as I'm sure everyone around the world knows, uh, it's, a, it's a shockingly transmissible virus. And uh, with what's been happening in Australia, we had an Australian tourist come through apparently and they've had the virus. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that, so as I'm sure you were reading the news, Australia has been in a terrible state for the last month or so. And unfortunately it was due to flow over here, but um, 
we are all in a little bit of shock because New Zealand has been COVID free for a very, very long time. And um, we have been, I think like Vietnam, really, you guys have been free also, I think pretty much. Yeah, we, we've yeah. we've been pretty free of all of it for about the same exact amount of time. And then in the past couple of months, yeah, the Delta variant has occupied Saigon primarily as the epicenter. And it's uh, supposedly next week, we're supposed to go into total lockdown where you're not supposed to leave your home at all unless it's an absolute emergency. Yeah, same with it. Yeah, so that's what level we're at. So you're on the same boat. Oh, dear. Yeah, we really, it's, we have such tight borders here, as I'm sure you do, but uh, we we did have this uh, bubble with Australia open uh, and we have so many New Zealanders living in uh, Australia that there was always going to be uh, family crossovers. So. Uh, we shut down tr the bubble a month or so ago, but apparently that last flight that came over uh, had somebody with the virus on it. So. It's amazing so the power of one person. I mean, in every aspect of life, but yes. meaning that really could change the course of an entire Correct. world, one person. Yeah. Quite a metaphor. Yeah. So let's talk about you yeah. and, and your career, your, your professional creative life. I know that um, this obviously is going to have and has had a significant effect on your ability to uh, work in the event-based part of your job. Oh, and for sure, yeah. When we first started speaking several months ago, it had already started taking effect. You had a cancellation on a, a major event that occurred. And uh, mm. I can't imagine that that has gotten any better. And I'm wondering how you have applied this new way of doing business and how going forward this is going to affect how you can be effective in doing what you do and how your clients are being affected by this you know the overall cataclysmic uh, effects of of the disease and how it's changed how we do business yeah and, and mark i think um when we first were talking, well, even before that, I think, you know, I was obviously in the content world, uh, the video production world as well as, as you guys have been. And, um, you know, we're, we're similar things. We, you know, content, creating a video, you need a crew, key actors, performers, you know, and we're the same in the in the world of events. You have a venue, you have a, a, a stadium, you have sound light guys, you have a performer, whether that's a sports team or, an, or a singer or an artist or... Uh, or whatever, um, you know, we're in the same world. We 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 work with people. <laughs> we're not IT people who sit in a box and look at screens. We we uh, rely on human contact. So both worlds are affected. And my role as head of marketing here for major events, Auckland, I deal in both. We're creating. If we're putting on an event here. Um, you know, even if it's uh, a rugby match or if it's um, a music festival, we're creating content on the back. There's broadcast, there's, there's music being produced, there's music being recorded, there's artists on, uh, you know, at half time. We're driving content and we're creating great stories and it's, it's really impacted that. But, you know, I guess the reason we're here talking is that the, the way through this is we've had to get creative. There are certainly some things that we just can't change. So an All Blacks rugby match against Australia, that simply can't happen. Uh, there's no way around that. That will, will be canceled. Some of the events we were talking around, the, the cultural events, the Pacifica Festival was the one that we'd spoken about uh, recently. We postponed that in the end. We moved it to another venue. We got creative. 
We looked around Auckland as to where would be a fantastic park and how can we negotiate with people to get onto that park and change the date. So we got creative and found another way to produce the festival. In a complete lockdown in the cre- in, in, in the events world, then uh, as I'm sure that my colleagues in Singapore and obviously in Vietnam, you know, everyone's gone virtual. And even for our cultural festivals, so we, we uh, produce four of the world's biggest cultural festivals here. We produce New Zealand's Diwali Festival, which is a celebration of Indian culture. We produce Pacifica, which is the world's biggest celebration of Pacifica culture. We present the Lantern Festival, which is the Southern Hemisphere's biggest festival of Chinese and Asian culture. And then we produce the Tamaki Haringa Waka Festival, which is the biggest celebration of Maori culture, uh, New Zealand's uh, First Nation peoples uh, in the world. So we put on those festivals here in Auckland. We have Diwali happening in October. So if that event is impacted by the COVID uh, outbreak, then we will take most of that online. Uh, We've created a whole lot of content already, video content, which revolve around Indian culture, how to make a traditional Northern Indian curry, how to wrap a sari properly how to create a Ringoli painting to help you relieve stress during the lockdown. We've come up with a whole lot of different creative video content pieces that we will then house on a a new website that we have just built, uh, which will be launched hopefully next month. It's been my biggest project at uh, Auckland Unlimited is to create a dynamic platform for storytelling where we can share the stories of the multiple cultures of Auckland through video, through photo, through live streaming, even without a live event. I know that here in Vietnam, there's a couple of studios for virtual production that have really taken off. There's a lot of uh, 3D animation happening and on the fly generated graphics. There's all kinds of interesting new methods for delivering content. And I'm wondering where where in that are you? And have you been able to take advantage of some of these new solutions that have been accelerated by the pandemic. You, you know what, Mike, I think um, unfortunately New Zealand, because back in uh, May, June last year, New Zealand kind of knocked the COVID virus on, 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 on the head. So essentially New Zealand's had almost a year of events. So there hasn't been the push so much to go to hybrid or virtual. And because we've been happy to film, you know, we had a we had a music concert here with 60,000 people at it in our famous rugby stadium. And it was broadcast around the world. People watched it because it was the only thing happening around the world <laughs> with 60,000 people watching a band. So it got huge traction from a broadcast perspective. But my peers in Singapore have done great because Singapore's got such a huge business event focus. You know, you think of Marina Bay Sands uh, Convention Center. You think of these huge facilities that Singapore's got, which which are the best in the world. So, so many of those businesses had to uh, pivot very quickly into virtual studios. We've only got two or three here uh, that are, are, are of any note. We've got a massive film industry here, but um, you remember Lord of the Rings, uh, Avatar, they were all filmed here. Massive post-production, you know, Weta Studios. We've got a lot of those elements here, but they've been very heavily focused on film because 
up until the UK and America got vaccinated, we were the only place in the world where you could come and actually film. So our film industry has been exceptionally busy. And so the, the post studios have been really much tied up with our, our um, feature film industry. But no, there, there, and look, we I work in a lot of business events as well as these big uh, consumer events here in Auckland. But there isn't as much of that hybrid stuff happening. But certainly Singapore, Vietnam, the UK, obviously, during the their winter, it was the only way to do business. Uh, when you think London, massive business place, how do you do virtual meetings? How do you do virtual conferences? But they just weren't super successful. The, the ones I'd seen and, and attended weren't great, to be honest. You know, you can you can switch off your camera. You can kind of only been half present. You're not re you're kind of working away while you're listening to someone talk or you're watching a, a review video. But video and content is definitely the way that it's changed. I did, New Zealand just ha certainly hasn't got to the front because we haven't had to. Right, right. So you haven't really even needed to employ these live generated graphics, live events that are being virtually produced, which has become a really big thing here. No, it's been pretty rudimentary. There's, there's two green, green studios here that have been doing uh, hybrid conferences with, you know, maybe two or three hundred people uh, when needed because we that's the limit you know this is the first lockdown this is the first full lockdown we've had in over a year so at the very worst we've had gatherings of 100 150 people and that would have only been for a week or two so we've been able to show off to the world and it's been part of the initiatives here is to show the world that we are open for business and that's been how bringing in investment it's been bringing in film studios uh, there have been huge businessmen coming here because they know that they can do business here. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. It's, it's been an interesting time. I'd like to go back to maybe the spark or the beginning of you jumping on that creative path, taking that journey as a, as a young person growing up. What were some of those things that inspired you? What maybe was a quintessential event where you realized that this was something that you want to do. It piqued your interest and uh, got you excited in a way that nothing else did. It's interesting, Mark. I've had a very many and varied career. I, I, I don't sit still. I have a very short attention span. It's probably why I'm still single at my age. Uh, I like new things. I like to try new things. I like new music. I'm a DJ. My first creative experiences uh, were around music. I've, I've been a DJ since I was 16. So that's <laughs> it's coming up to 40 years. <laughs> I love music. So that's been my creative theme through life. I'm a historian. I was a history teacher. So that was where I started writing. So my imagination uh, has always been spurred by that and science fiction. So in some weird ways, I was drawing and writing stories about battleships in space um, and kind of crazy things like that. So that's where that creativity kind of started, I guess, was around the stories that I had in my head. It kind of ended up being like those 1980s episodes of Buck Rogers or Battlestar Galactica. So when Battlestar Galactica came out, I went, someone's stolen my idea. So that's where that kind of started. And then in film, I've always been into film. I made movies as a kid, bad ones, but always been passionate for film and the visual arts. So so that's where that started. And then I got into event world as a DJ. I was always putting on events and they were always, they always had set dressing. They always had themes. So I was always designing my own posters using different cutouts, that very Bauhaus uh, way of doing posters, postmodern stuff. So, you know, before we had 
Photoshop. It was all about cutting stuff out. <laughs> so that's where that all started. And then uh, from that got into marketing through the world of events and, and then into sponsorship, working with big companies like Diageo. So my mind kind of went into taking brands to sponsors, to, to events and how you would create a brand experience, how you would connect with people in an emotional way using music, art, sensory, touch. And then from that content came back into my life again because we would want to film all these great events and we would want to create film great experiences and people having a good time. So uh, that's kind of in a, in, a, in, a, in a short nutshell how the creativity worked. And then of course I went to Singapore and began creative directing. I think I think that's more than anything. I'm more of a connector of, of good good creative minds. You're listening to The Pure Now Show a creative podcast for creatives presented by Balance. Yeah, that's key. I mean, you're a, you're a facilitator, a conduit, and uh, you can uh, get the people together, which is very, you know, event and immersion focused. And that seems to be where things are going. And once the smoke does clear on the pandemic and, and things begin to normalize, do you feel that these immersive experiences are going to be more prevalent and that this is going to be a way for brands to reach a much larger audience and get a better foothold on their target market? I think it will happen eventually, Mark. I think, you know, and New Zealand's been the, the uh, and I, I was going to use bubble, but I'm not going to use that word because it sounds bad. But, you know, we've been the Ted the Petri dish here because we've been able to have events with 60,000 people attending. What we've seen is uh, that, yes, people are hungry for experiences. People have gone back in droves to music festivals. People have gone back. This is New Zealand, I have to say. This is a different to the rest of the world. We have been COVID free. We have, we're not England, we're not the States, we're not Singapore, where there are a hundred cases a day still happening and people are learning to live with it. Up until this week, we had zero cases. So we're living in a, in a different world. And, and in, a, in a world where there are zero COVID cases, people have embraced the live experience, music, art, fashion, sport, food, immersing their senses again, but they've wanted to be with people. And again, I'll caveat, in a zero COVID environment, people have loved it. And some brands have gone, yeah, we wanna get onto this brand experience thing. We wanna, we wanna do that and they've gone into festivals, but a lot of the brands because of COVID are still risk averse. So I don't see, and, and, that, and I would imagine budgetary wise, the budgets have been halved because the budgets are on with TV because even with or without COVID, people are still watching their screen and that's on demand so so marketing spend has gone to digital on and on demand and and even to traditional linear tv so yeah it'll happen uh but you know I, i'm i've got a lot of friends in the music industry in in the uk at the moment you know that's festival land and in the us and look you know they're putting on these big festivals but not as many people are going people are still aware that there are people with covid and people have fake COVID passports and you know there are people who are still you know and quite rightly averse to going out people with asthma people with underlying health conditions will not be going out to a crammed nightclub to listen to their favorite band and, and drink Smirnoff vodka and enjoy a brand experience so that will take a couple of years to pass I think in countries where they haven't eliminated the virus um, you know that's that's the the challenge that we're, we're faced with I think there will now always be a, 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 a fear around that 
um, it, 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 until it changes our consciousness or, um, or, or our health system and the vaccines manage to create whatever the herd immunity thing is, I think people will still be a little bit scared to, to get involved, but it, it, it will happen. Yeah, well, we're definitely seeing a change in human behavior patterns and, uh, and risk assessment uh, uh, versus the dangers Correct. of yeah. just yeah. literally going outside. And I think it's fascinating in the sense that these behavior changes are also changing the way we're creating in some ways and how we're presenting work. And uh, how do you see the future of creative, uh, not just based on COVID, but just based on technology and, and how we are receiving information? I mean, we're inundated with advertising 24 hours a day now. We are buried in these screens of various sizes and there's so much content that, uh, you know, to, mm, to get yep. that high quality piece that a client is willing to pay for that really shines above the rest, you really have to go looking for it. I mean, there's such an inundation of information yep. around the clock. It's, it's almost a point of insanity. Well, it is a point of insanity. How as a creative professional, as a creative director, as a content developer, how do you navigate through this and and provide your clients with something that you feel good about and that's going to give them some traction, give them some added value and and shine above some of this other content that may be a little bit weaker or, you know, everything's also social media now. So we're all getting blasted on social media. There's just, again, incredible amounts of information and advertising marketing being blasted at us. How do you stay ahead of the curve and ensure that your clients are getting really high quality creative and not that it necessarily has to cost anymore, but that at least the content is superior quality and that they're getting the results that they're paying for? I think there's a couple of phases to your question. I think about how do we, in the modern age, how do we develop amazing and effective creative. The first element of that, um, a friend of mine, Dr. Wayne Lotherington runs a course. It's about it's about creative connections. It's about how, and I'm, you know, as a creative, the way that uh, I've always uh, come up with good ideas is by, as we talked earlier, is connecting people, connecting ideas, shaking things up by just challenging the status quo. Um, uh, and, and that kind of connectivity with humans in this current world is very difficult. And, you know, the being able to, to just sit in a room with a couple of beers and just spitball some stuff and throw some post-it notes on the wall, there it's much, much more difficult. I mean, I know that there are, we've, we've worked on different ways now through Zoom, etc., to do that. I'm not sure it's as effective. You just can't get that human uh, interaction. I know that coming back to... New Zealand from Singapore, uh, you could really notice the difference in creativity amongst the teams from being on the, the digital side, the virtual side to, to reality, to the real human side. So I think, you know, I, I, I believe there's been a, a dearth of creativity in the last 12 months. I don't know about you, what your viewpoint is, but I, the dynamic human storytelling that we used to do that really punched through the clutter and I do believe that storytelling, whether that's in video content or um, written word, in copywriting, in, in, in visual arts, on a poster, a billboard, that human storytelling is what people are hungry for. 
the, the ability to get out there and find them now in the virtual world is a lot harder than it was than being able to walk around a city or or use your connections to meet somebody who you knew was a compelling story that could be associated with a brand or, or, or product. Those moments have become more challenging and harder to find, but they're still out there. And, and I think it's just about using our online networks, our connectivity through mobile, through, through computers to, to find those stories and, and then find the solutions creatively to be able to produce the, the content. Uh, and how do we write those stories? And how do we do these things like you and I are doing now? You know, I, I guess we, we wouldn't have used to done this, right? So this is the kind of thing that helps us to bring those uh, ideas and thoughts to, to, to other people. But I think, you know, to that question, how do you create cut through in this cluttered world? It's, it's the human storytelling that's so important. And, and again, I'm a documentary uh, advocate, I, I sit on the board of the Documentary Film Festival here, uh, while well, I'm with the team. And, um, you know, the power of the documentary, and, and this is what we're working with Chimney Group in Singapore was amazing because the majority of the team, the managing director, the producer, they're all ex-documentary filmmakers. And that human storytelling really came through in some of the work that we did. It was about the people. It was about people. And I think that's where you cut through with creativity. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, America's releasing another Marvel movie. And, you know, I grew up in the 60s, 70s, <laughs> 80s, and 90s when there was so much incredible creativity just bursting at the seams. Sure. And, and now it just seems like everything is a little bit watered down. It's more about quantity than quality. It's vanilla. Yeah, it's vanilla. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's sad because I have yeah. children who are growing up in this age yeah. and they don't have the advantages that I did of hearing a song for the first time on the radio or seeing incredible films. None of that is yeah. available to them and they have to just whittle through the plethora of garbage uh, that is, is just thrust I'll, upon I'll them. Give, I'll give Disney one. I'll give Disney Man the Mandalorian because that had some good stories in it. I quite I enjoyed. There's a little bit of Western in The Mandalorian, which uh, which I enjoyed. Okay, well I'm going to check that out because I have not as of yet. I've become certainly not a luddite, but I've kind of extracted myself from the digital media world in many ways. Well, you, because... you'd have to enjoy the Star Wars canon to uh, oh, to get Star into Wars. The Mandalorian, but. Uh... Yeah, so you'll love The Mandalorian. And also, um, there's a variety of directors. New Zealand's uh, Taika Waititi does direct one of them. So there's some very famous directors who are incredible storytellers who have done different episodes, and you can see some great stories in, in, the, in the Mandalorian. It's, it's a good series. Well, here's how old I am. I saw the first Star Wars in a drive-in movie theater when I was 12. <laughs> yeah, well... We didn't have drive-ins in New Zealand when, when that came out, but I can promise you, I was a I was a very young man as well. Unbelievable. <laughs> so much so, I think it was my. I know it was PG, wasn't it? So it wasn't yeah. an R movie, but I remember sneak. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's not show our age too much, Mark. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Hey, I, I, you know what? I'm going to be 60 this year, and uh, I've never felt better, and uh, ne never had a clearer head. So sometimes there's an advantage of getting advanced in your years of having a little wisdom. I agree, I agree. Thrust upon I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm only a couple of years off yet. I would like to hear a story about <laughs> a client that you worked with that was just an amazing opportunity, a project that really inspired you and maybe 
set you off on a course, a different course that you were not expecting? I think the, the biggest thing that I worked on, and this will come from the world of brand experience really, and it really excited me. I mean, like I'm a marketer as well as a creative, right? So I, I've been in marketing, I work client side, I work client side now. So I love strategy. I mean, my role as a creative, that's what I am. I'm a creative strategist. So me being a military historian by university trade means that I love strategy. And I think the most exciting thing that I worked on was this campaign with, with the wonderful brand Coca-Cola and they had decided to sponsor the English football championship. So that's not the Premier League soccer. That's not the, the top range of the soccer. It's the soccer leagues below that. It's yeah. the soccer leagues that have no money. It's the soccer leagues that, where the good players come through, but they've only got 10,000 people at the game, They maybe less, 5,000 people. You know, it's working class, it's real grassroots, uh, but they still have a little bit of television coverage here and there. They still have very, very, very passionate fans. And Coca-Cola, who weren't sponsoring the Premier League because it was so expensive, they went and sponsored the championship, the one below the Premier League. So they, I guess it's like Major League Baseball and, and, and the minor leagues. And they went, okay, so what is it? What, what's, the, what's the biggest pain point here for uh, these clubs? What, what is it that's really holding them back? And what it was, of course, was that the Premier League gets the worldwide broadcast. So they get billions of dollars from sponsors. Uh, all the clubs get billions of dollars just from Sky doing the broadcast. You know, they, they literally just lap up the money. These little guys have got Joe Bloggs Garage sponsoring the main team, right? So they get they get a sponsorship of five thousand dollars, or so, you know, the the guys up the top are getting fifty million dollars per per brand, and these guys are getting five hundred dollars maybe. So they decided that what Coca Cola would do was every so basically the first thing they did was it was the it was a world first for Coca Cola. They changed their can the red and white of the can, it's the first time they've ever done it. They changed it to the whatever the color of your football team was. Mm. So if the color of your football team was yellow and green, it became yellow and green on the can. And what they did was that everybody who bought a can, if you went down to the recycling area at your football club and put that can in, into the big thing, they would take that away and they would count up the number of cans and they would give $1 per can towards a fee for you to buy the player that you wanted. So it was this great big idea around, you know, obviously you want to get the best players and they're all worth all the money. So these guys could buy a player from Coca-Cola, which was incredible. So these clubs who never had any money suddenly were getting like $50,000, which they wouldn't have had before to buy a marquee player, which they wouldn't have never had be able to do before. Uh, and it really changed and it showed how fashion, and so basically the fans were, it got the fans so heavily involved that the fans were buying trucks, you know, big 18 wheelers and putting their football club colors with Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola brand and Coca-Cola would send them the color of their club and saying, buy, Coke now. <laughs> so it was fan jet. This is, and look, let me just qualify this. This is the time before social media. So there was no social media. Uh, websites, this was 2005, I believe. So, you know, you barely had web, you know, web, you know, we were probably a web 
one point something. Yeah. Uh, but it was early days of websites. The dot com bobble had just happened. We didn't have cat. We only just had cameras on the phones, the little crappy ones. So there weren't ways of people to disseminate information as quickly as the. I mean, the email was about. But the the way that they embraced what the fans were doing, the way they'd used an insight around what the clubs and fans want the most uh, and how to make that happen. And then, of course, there were TV commercials off the back of that, just talking to fans. But again, human storytelling. Guys, you know, who's who's the fan you, who's the player you want, why? Uh, again, there was a website where you could vote for the player that you were gonna buy. The, the way they'd integrated this incredible campaign Again, insight-based, looking for the human stories around fandom, uh, the fan advocacy, the, the, you know, there wasn't user-generated content per se, but there were a lot of great activities that the fans got into. They would do, uh, I guess, in the, America, in the American vernacular um, stuff to get everyone Tailgate down. party. Yeah, that's right, and sell cans of Coke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, and, and of course, Coke sales went through the roof. I mean, you can imagine what a difference it made to the to the sales, but more than that, what it did, it made the communities really embrace Coca-Cola as someone who was supporting them at the grassroots level. And it changed people's perception of Coke as this big red brand. It wasn't big and red and a big American brand anymore. This is in England, of course. It was a brand that was local. It was a brand that supported Norwich City Football Club, you know, this little town football club. So. I think being part of that and seeing the joy uh, that it brought to people's faces was the uh, most important thing. And again, I'm very much about this human interaction, the storytelling, but the change it made to those small clubs, the people, the fans uh, was, was moving. It was really, really amazing. It was great. Okay, now give me the opposite. You don't have to be specific with the <laughs> name of the client. Uh, but give me an idea of, of maybe a project that was not going as well as you'd hoped. But in the end, of course, you know, through pain is growth. And we do learn things regardless of uh, how they feel at the time. But there must have been some projects uh, that were far more challenging for you that uh, uh, in the end maybe worked out okay. But along the way, we're a little uncomfortable. There will always be clients who don't trust, I think, you know, and whether that, and again, that's like any relationship. That's, um, <laughs> that's marriage, that's friendship, uh, that's family. You know, if, if you've been hurt in a, in a past iteration or you've had a bad experience, that will reflect into your new one, right? That'll, that'll, that'll impact the way you, so if you've had a bad agency experience, that will mean that you might become somewhat anally retentive. Uh, around certain things, or you might want to be more hands-on than you potentially should. Like anything in life, I've just you know, and again, in my in my older years, you just sort of go that trust is so important to what you're doing. And I, I, there's no particular brand, but it's those relationships where the client has not trusted what you're doing, and has had behaviors that might be perceived as bullying, wanting to be more, you know, just wanting to be in every meeting. Yep, yeah, I definitely had an, that's just sparked a whole <laughs> range of different ones. But yeah, there was, there was a particular commercial, uh, well, a series of video content pieces that I made. Yeah, I won't go, I can't go into too much detail. But seriously, the client was, everywhere and 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 you know we we had a very 
you know, one of the best directors in in, in this country shoot the video content. Uh, we had the best crew. Uh, we we did it, you know, again as always. You do it for, for because they wanted more crew, so you'd put on more crew. <laughs> Um, we had a great vision, the way it should have been shot, uh, the way it should have sounded. Uh, but the client, again, I, I don't know whether it's bad experience or whether it's bad management on their part that they might have bosses pressuring them. I felt, I felt, I felt that it was more that the team would have trusted us, but they had a boss going, I need you to know every single detail and be in every single. So even down to the grading. You know, they were in the grading suites, you know, uh, every sound that we were doing, um, it was challenging. There's two things, and I'm client side now, again, I've been client side before, but I, and I'm now in an organization with 1600 people. So I understand sign off by committee, and my God, it's horrendous. Um, I hate to think of the, you know, I've got, I've been working with agencies now and they, they know me well enough because I used to work at an agency, so they know me and they trust me, but, you know, they, I can't get things signed. They want things signed off in two weeks. I've got to give them two months because I've got so many people to get signed off. And I'm also a government organization. So there's bureaucracy as well as 1600 people. But that was the other point. I think we not only was it the micromanagement, but there'd be six clients in the room in that grading suite. So imagine six clients with six opinions under pressure to micromanage. <laughs> That's what made it so difficult and impossible and time consuming and therefore blew out the budget and therefore meant that we lost money as a company and therefore we didn't want to work with that client really uh, in that way again. Even though they were a marquee client, they were like the biggest client in that country, if not the region. Uh, and uh, you know, it was kind of a situation like we wouldn't work with you again. You're listening to The Pure Now Show a creative podcast for creatives presented by Balance. Client management is probably one of the most challenging parts of being a creative professional is uh, the process. It's not the work itself. It's just uh, getting from A to Z. Yeah. And trust, you know, you, you, I, I guess, you know, I've been a suit, so I'm a bit of a hybrid. Uh, my, my, my agency life, I started out as a suit, not a creative. I didn't have enough belief in myself as a creative until creative a director of a big agency here in New Zealand just went, you're not in the wrong department, but you kind of are sitting in between here and you need to kind of work out a role, which is when I decided to create my own role, which was creative strategist, because that kind of is a suit <laughs> and a creative. Uh, and everyone laughed at me and said, well, that's a silly title. This was, this was about 12 years ago. Everyone's like, well, that's a stupid title. What the heck? And now everyone wants to be a creative strategist. So I don't know. It's funny. But no, I think um, as a suit, the, the biggest skill that you can have is to build trust, to have someone look at you and go, I'll leave that to Mark. He knows what he's doing. He puts me at ease. You know, it's about making it feel valued, feel heard, feel respected. And, and you know, just being there. They're, they're those key things that, that in, in, in any relationship uh, are important. And I think in the creative, you know, if you want people to be creative and get good work, they're the key, key elements as well. Well, I think that's a good transition into you being a mental health advocate. And, yeah. and honestly, uh, it's, it's yeah. foundational. It's the bedrock of humanity. And we are, as homo sapiens, at a critical point right now with mental health. Uh, many parts of the world don't even identify it yes. as an issue. They're, they're not aware of this yes. as yes. being something 
uh, to be concerned about. And, uh, and especially in the States where I am not currently, it is at a fever pitch and people are definitely yeah. suffering more now uh, than ever. And the COVID of course yep. has ex exacerbated that because a crisis is al always the great revealer. And what is your role as a mental health advocate, what what have you been doing to help um, <clears throat> with, with the situation? Yeah, I think, um, you know, by way of background and, and um, you know, in all honesty, you know, I've had my own challenges over the years and, you know, I'm a sensitive soul. I mean, I, and I think, you know, let, let's let's be honest, us creatives, I said, we, we, we wouldn't be good creatives if we weren't sensitive people. And um, I know we all have our own challenges in the creative world, but it's not just that, it's, it's all across the board. I've got non-creative friends here in New Zealand and we have a huge problem here in New Zealand. We have the highest rate of male suicide in the world per, in the OECD. We have, I think, the second or third highest rate of suicide in the OECD across the board. Um, it comes down in New Zealand specifically to our machismo, rugby playing image we're a, we're a tough country we're a, we're a country that comes from the from the mountains and the, and the, and the farm we're, we're, we're not seen to be sophisticated uh, artistic people and if you are our society doesn't necessarily accept that as a young at a young age um, so that's always been a problem. It's, it's part of the reason I didn't like living here as a child. I, I, I luckily I got moved out of New Zealand when I was 15. Moved to I, mean, I moved to another machismo country in Australia, but I, I quickly moved to the UK where I, I found them to be more accepting of creative, different kind of people who are a bit weird off 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 the edge. So my work over here, uh, I have uh, was a founder of a, a youth uh, mental health charity here called Why for Youth. Uh, which we started about fifth, uh, 10 years or so, oh no, about 15 years ago. Uh, and then I've also been, I was involved in setting up a social enterprise here uh, called Teammate, uh, which unfortunately we didn't get finished, but we are gonna start uh, reinvigorating. But I think uh, internally my organization, I uh, am working a lot in my own organization to recognize, uh, Auckland Unlimited to recognize mental health challenges and how we can help. Uh, we're doing a lot of training on uh, triaging people. So um, our first responder organization here, which is St. John's Ambulance, they now run, so you know you can buy, you can do a first aid course for cuts, bruises, uh, heart attacks, you can do CPR. So that's a two day course, it's a global course and you get that on your drivers, you know, it shows that you're a qualified first aider. When they're now running courses here, which we're all involved in, uh, which is a mental health first aid. So it's how to triage people through mental health. So understanding whether you're, you know, an A, B, or C, whether you're an A, whether you're someone who maybe just needs someone to sit down and have a talk. Maybe you just need to open up and check in. Uh, maybe you're someone who needs some help on exercise, lifestyle changes. Um, maybe you're a, a B, a category B, which might mean that you need to have a look at some medication, some therapy um, on top of the of, of the, the, the checking in and the, and the chats. Or you could be a, a C, which is obviously, um, that's the, the highest level, that's suicide prevention level. So that's recognizing A, B or C, and then coming up with strategies to, 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 to work on those. So we're really pushing that hard here in New Zealand. But the biggest thing I'm trying to do here in New Zealand really is uh, for us to open up and talk about it. Suicide in New Zealand is, I think, almost double 
the road deaths here in New Zealand. So accident, drink driving, speeding, wow. people dying from that. There were more people dying of suicide here than, than that. But we spend literally millions of dollars on TV commercials around don't drink and drive, you know, TV commercials, radio commercials, billboards, print ads, don't speed, wear your seatbelt, drive slowly, uh, look after your family. You know, you, you, you can't go an hour on New Zealand television without seeing an advertisement for, for, for motor vehicle accidents. But we don't see any ads for suicide prevention. We, we barely see ads. The government here, again, even though we have a, 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 a great leader in Jacinda who, who believes in uh, we should be measured on wellness in our society, we shouldn't be measured on uh, GDP, we should be measured on how well our society is. There is still no action here on our incredibly high and growing suicide rates. And, our rates of mental health. So I'm, I'm very much behind raising awareness for that. And as much as I can, I talk to it. Um, I do a lot of speaking groups and uh, bringing people together to try and, and combat this. In Singapore, the same. Uh, Singapore is an incredible case, uh, as you mentioned earlier, one that where it's swept under the carpet. Singaporean society and a lot of Asian society, I'm sure you know in Vietnam, just do not talk about, so they just do not talk about, it's a failure. If someone kills themselves, it's, um, a failure. The word commit suicide comes from the terminology that if you tried to kill yourself, you would be committed. That's why you just say to suicide. So in Singapore, up until a few years ago, if you tried to jump off a building and you failed, you would go to jail. That's how that, that society deals with suicide, which is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not great. It's, it's Singapore, most of the people who try to end their life in Singapore are elderly because they feel that they're a burden on their children. Um, and again, people don't talk about grandfather John or grandfather um, Peter dying of suicide. They talk of him just dying. So it's not something that is spoken about in Singaporean culture either. So there's a, a when I was there, we were trying to put it forward to uh, the government uh, initiatives around making it, uh, raising suicide awareness, but it was very, it was more difficult in Singapore than it is here actually, because most suicide goes unreported. Well, there's a lot of denial around it. And uh, uh, I think as a society, we believe more uh, in punishment than rehabilitation. And clearly that is not the answer. And the results are catastrophic. No. Even in America, if you fail to commit suicide, you will have more problems. Your, your problems will be compounded. You will yep. not go into a program and be nurtured and uh, brought back to health. You're demonized. And uh, it is the absolute yes, right. antithesis of what needs to happen in the world. And those people are our messengers. They're letting us know that we're dropping the ball. Yep. And it's imperative that we take notice of this because it will only get increasingly worse. That is not something that's going to get better. There is no Band-Aid approach, and it's uh, it's a lack of love in the world, really. Yeah, I, I really hope COVID might change that level of empathy. I don't know, because um, as you've said, the, the, the isolation, the lockdowns have certainly, you know, we don't know the full impact of that yet. The statistics, again, in New Zealand, we our statistics are four years behind. <laughs> because the coroner reports have to be verified. We won't know the statistics on mental health here and suicide for another four years around COVID, <laughs> which is ridiculous because we can't take any action. <laughs> but um, it's the same a lot of places around the world. We, we really won't know the impact uh, that 
the lockdowns have had versus deaths uh, that would have occurred through the virus. And this is what people were saying from the start. And you know, a lot of people were, well, that's not gonna be, surely that won't be the case. But anecdotally, suicide rates have gone through the roof uh, during COVID here in New Zealand, particularly. I think we're not gonna find out results all the digital addictions that we have yeah. now, all, all these recent phenomenons, even sports, True. even competition, which I think is at the root of a lot of the evil of the world. That yes. In the next 20 to 30 years, we're really going to start getting the results of what's going on. And, but, you yeah. know, we are our own creation. I, I'd like to know a, more about how you have taken on being a DJ, especially later in life. You're, you're an older cat. You're a cool guy, but you have a lot of good experience and you've grown up with so much music, which is really a, a benefit. Most of the shelves behind me there are all it's all records my house is just records yeah tell me how you've integrated this life as a dj into being a creative professional and how you balance that between that and your being a creative director and someone who's a wellness advocate and having a private life all these things integrated together it's, it's had its benefits and it's had its challenges the reason i got into um working in event marketing and event sponsorship was because of my dj ability slash connection so when i moved to london in 1990 or the uk i knew more about dance music, for example, coming from Australia than most people in the commercial world in the UK did. So when they met me, I was a marketer who knew about dance music and brands like Smirnoff were going, well, how do we get involved in this new and upcoming cool scene that we know nothing about? And I would be able to, to introduce them and then work out ways that we could do good marketing around it. Um, so I guess my mark, my music and event skills, my promote music DJ promotion skills helped me to tell brands how to fit within that scene. So that was good. So that became you know me as a as an influential person both in the music side because I could bring brands to I guess uh, festivals or whatever, and then for brands would look at me and go, well he knows what he's talking about. So, this, so that was great. Um, it, you know, I guess on the flip side of that was I would be doing uh, long hours at work and then I would be doing four to five nights of DJing uh, in various parts of Europe on weekends and Wednesday, Thursdays in London. And so by the age of 40, I totally had burned out. And, you know, people were going, well, you know, why don't you just go and DJ? You know, that's a cool thing. You know, you, you get the girls and... Um, you know, you travel the world and, but I was kind of like going, yeah, but I'm going to be pasty white, never see the sunshine and exhausted. And you know, the lifestyle's not great, booze and all the other things that come along with the music world, uh, were never great. And I also wanted to use my brain. I like to like, like my brain. I like my strategy. I like my creativity and I wanted to do things with that. So I kind of forced that, that double life on myself. But the DJ world again was great for connections. And as I said to me, networking connections are what have let me get to where I am. Working in the event world, working in the brand world, I'd see people at, at gigs and they'd know who I was and I'd know who they were. So we'd, it would help to grease some wheels and get influenced with people. So 
Yeah, it was all good. Um, so I came back to New Zealand after I crashed and burned in London. And I certainly haven't DJed as much. I guess more now it's a hobby. I do gigs for free. I do gigs to go to festivals. For I get a free ticket to a festival if I DJ. So, you know, that, that works for me. I don't want to do it as a career move now. I mean, I've got all my vinyl. So I guess people, as you kind of mentioned, people view me as the old cool cat. And it's funny how music comes around in cycles. And at the moment, the music that I was playing 20 years ago is what's hitting with the kids. So yeah. um, I'm lucky that I can bring my old vinyl out and people go, wow, what's that new tune? And going, well, it's 20 years old, but, you know. <laughs> You know, it's it's the way that things come around again. And also, you know, I mean, I don't know what kind of genre vinyl you have, but, you know, funk and soul and disco, the stuff I've had for years and collected, and even my old 80s electronica, you know, people love that stuff. So I get enjoyment from seeing people dance, and I, I really enjoy that uh, that buzz. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. And, I, and I've gone electronic now. That's new. I've got a... My friends in Singapore were, because they could see how frustrated I was, I couldn't bring all my vinyl with me to Singapore. They were like, oh, we'll just get you a Pioneer controller. And I was like, whoa, I don't I don't want to know. You know, I was a purist, and uh, but I got my controller and I've really enjoyed that experience. I just haven't had the time. There's hours, if not years, spent collecting and curating that. And I haven't had the time to go online to all the platforms as yet and you know, I mean, I, ha I would have to digitize this 6,000 records here and that would take six years or something. So I'm not right, going right, to right. sit there and digitize my record collection. But someone suggested I pay a, an intern or something to do that, to just sit in my house and upload my vinyl onto a computer. But I couldn't put anyone through that. One of my last two questions, which I think this is transitions too well. If you were unable to do all the things that you do and had to choose a new path you had to abandon everything that you're doing now do you have any interests outside of what you're doing and and would be apt to potentially go down a different road and try something new i guess they're kind of semi-associated associated with what i do i mean i'd like to write film i've already got ideas in my head to do that i mean that's kind of still the same i yeah i kind of apart from that not really much else. I've always wanted to play cricket and be a professional cricketer, but I don't think I could yeah. do that with the body that I have now. Or I could coach. I'd be a very good cricket coach. Those I'm, that can't do, teach. Used to so there you go. Cricket. That's it. Well, and, and I guess that's the next step for me is that uh, one of the universities here has offered me to, and I used to teach years and years ago, so I think that's definitely something that I'd like to, to look into. I, I, I guess lecture uh, here at Auckland University of Technology and and also sometimes at the University of Auckland. So I, I do love that. I love watching. I don't, I don't have kids, so seeing uh, young folk learn and grow and develop is, a, is a, certainly something I really enjoy. And I think that would be something I'd probably more likely change my career and move into, even if I was still just talking about this or talking about DJing. But... I would definitely love to to teach and watch young people develop. And another perfect transition, what advice do you have for young people coming up in the business oh, okay. uh, on their creative path or they're starting their journey? What advice do you have that can maybe uh, eliminate some of their yeah. uh, needless sufferings and help them on their way? Look, I, I, it's not it's not easy for everybody to do this, but I can't. I can't stop thinking about 
how important it is to connect with people and to develop networks. I know that's hard for a lot of people, particularly in the creative worlds. It, it, it really is hard. And if you're happy being that person to be the quiet one, whether it's a creative team or whatever, but somebody around you's got to build those connections because I think creative creativity comes from connections and new ideas, new people, and people are the ones with ideas. Yes, you can go to France and look at some great buildings or go to the Louvre and watch, look at some pictures and go, that might inspire you, sure. But it's people that really inspire. And I think that the more people you can meet, uh, and I know a lot of creatives always say read, you know, reading is, is super important, it's, you know, read a book every day, you should read. And I agree, you know, reading's really important, you know, particularly for writers, I think reading evokes your imagination, but I can't say anything more than just meet as many people as you can, because those human stories are what spark your own stories and get your brain thinking. There's nothing like people, there's nothing like humanity, and the more that, as we come out of COVID, the more you can get out and meet all the different people. Don't be afraid to meet the crazies, the the people that you wouldn't meet with, the, you know, maybe it's the, the snobs or whatever, the different tribes that we have. Just get out, break down those boundaries, meet people, understand cultures. If you enjoyed the Pure Now show, you can check out more episodes at balancestudio.tv or anywhere fine podcasts are broadcast. Pure Now is produced and engineered by Hai Ha Dang and directed by Dong Wun Guan. Special thanks to our media sponsor, Maybe, and iDesign.vn. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>